Get informed, get inspired, and get connected. CannabisRadio.com presents NCIA's Cannabis Industry Voice. The National Cannabis Industry Association is the only national trade organization representing the businesses of the legal cannabis industry. NCIA's Cannabis Industry Voice covers a range of topics, including the rapidly evolving political and policy changes that affect our industry, news and events of importance to cannabis professionals, and features on companies, individuals, and campaigns at the cutting edge of the cannabis industry. NCIA's Cannabis Industry Voice begins now. Hi, thanks for tuning in to another episode of NCIA's Cannabis Industry Voice on Cannabis Radio. I'm your host, Bethany Moore, and I'm the Communications Manager at the National Cannabis Industry Association. Today, I have two guests who are members of NCIA. We're joined by attorneys Rachel Gillette and James Mann. They are attorneys in the cannabis space based in Denver and New York, and they focus much of their work on issues related to Section 280E of the IRS tax code and beyond. Welcome to the show, Rachel and James. Thank you. Great. Great to have you both. Um, So let's start with uh, you, James. Uh, Can you give me a brief background on you and, and what your specialty is, what you were doing prior to working on cannabis issues? Well, basically, I'm just a boring tax lawyer. Um, I've done a <laughs> lot of corporate and tax accounting work. I worked in various big law firms before joining Greenspoon Martyr. Um, I also was in charge of federal appellate tax litigation for the Department of Justice in Washington. Wow, thank you for that. Um, I'm sure you're more than just a boring tax lawyer, but I appreciate the work you're doing here for the cannabis space as well on these important tax issues. Okay. Um, and, and Rachel, um, I know you here from the Denver community. I see you around. Um, I know you've been involved in uh, cannabis in, in your work as well. Um, but tell me more about your background and, and where you come from in this, in this space. So I've been working in the cannabis industry since uh, 2010. That's when the state of Colorado first started regulating and licensing medical marijuana businesses at the time. Um, I've been representing cannabis businesses in tax matters since uh, 2011, and that's sort of uh, what I started doing out of law school uh, when I graduated was working on tax matters. And then when I started my own practice representing cannabis businesses, I saw that there was a need for people that had that type of expertise in uh, representing businesses before the IRS, because in Colorado, they were they were starting to be audited um, many years ago. So uh, that really started the ball rolling. Um, I represent uh, cannabis businesses in audits from start to finish. I've, I've worked on a number of tax court cases, and I um, am very, very familiar with, the, with 280E and how it affects uh, cannabis businesses uh, that are trying to operate today. Right, absolutely. I know you've also um, been involved in some grassroots groups as well. Um, I believe you you were formerly the executive director of the Colorado chapter of Normal, the national organization to reform marijuana laws. Do you want to talk about some of that other work that you've uh, been involved in on more of a volunteer basis? Sure. Yeah, I've always been an advocate for the legalization of cannabis. 
since a very young age, actually. And uh, I, I was executive director of Colorado Normal for a number of years, including during the time that Amendment 64 was passed, uh, which legalized adult use cannabis. I've also been a founding member of Women Grow and uh, the National Cannabis Bar Association as well. Um, so cannabis has been a large part of my life for a long time, and I'm an advocate as well as an attorney in this space, um, and it's important work. Yeah, yeah, it's super important to have both sides, I think, of, of the grassroots as well as doing, doing the legal work as well, for sure. Um, so, so, Rachel, um, you mentioned that you've been an advocate for a long time. Some people have um, a personal story that really made them become a cannabis advocate, maybe somebody has an illness or perhaps the social justice issues. I'm curious what your reason uh, for being a cannabis advocate is. That's a great question. Um, actually, when I was in high school, um, I grew up in, I was actually born in Washington, D.C., and I grew up around there. Um, and I just, um, you know, I just saw a, a lot of the harmful effects of the drug war, including the disproportional um, application of drug laws to um, minorities and people of color and, and the poor. And so that's one of the reasons that I thought it was really important to try to work to reform uh, drug laws and especially marijuana laws. Um, so that's, that's one of the reasons. I also understood that cannabis as a plant um, did have uh, numerous medicinal benefits and um, I saw that the federal government's failure and I still see this today uh, failure to recognize uh, that med- that um, cannabis has uh, medical applications um, was just an injustice and it continues to be so today so I think we've got a lot more work to do on the federal level especially I'm glad to hear that the farm bill is being signed today um, which would legalize industrial hemp that's something we've been working on as well mm-hmm. um, but um, you know there's still a lot of work to do in the cannabis space but you know my my personal story is just by seeing sort of the social effects of the drug war and the social and the injustices um, as a result of of um, the, the laws surrounding um, cannabis. Failed war on drugs, for sure. Uh, yeah, I actually grew up in Maryland is, uh, as well, pretty close to D.C., and I remember when I was in school, one of my friends got busted for, for possession of marijuana and lost his, um, his financial aid as a result because that's the rules. If you, if you get caught, you no longer have financial aid. Now, how does that help a person when you've taken away all their options to help themselves. It, it, it is so backward, and, and I think everyone listening can agree that the, the laws are completely backward, and, and the word draconian comes to mind. Um, right. Yeah, yeah. So thanks for sharing that, Rachel. I appreciate that. And um, James, I, I think you, you, you admitted you, you don't have a similar story, but um, I think you called yourself a boring tax lawyer. <laughs> But um, did you ever think you would be working on cannabis issues in this capacity? And, and how does it feel being being in the thick of it now? Well, it's really exciting and interesting. And uh, I'm struck by the injustice of 280E. Um, I also think that in the particular case we're talking about, Harborside Health, they 
they were treated very badly. It's essentially a nonprofit company, and the IRS says, "Okay, you owe us thirty-six million dollars." So, oh. I'm I'm really happy to be able to work in this area now, and uh, and I'm it's great being at Greenspoon and Martyr, who has a lot of talented people like Rachel, who have a lot of background in this field. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, we're going to talk more about the Harborside um, Health Center tax court case in this podcast for sure. Um, and, and thanks to you both for recently submitting a written blog um, that listeners can also go check out on our website in, in the blog section. Um, so, so now you're both attorneys at Greenspoon Martyr. Um, so tell me more about uh, the company and, and how long you've been there and what kinds of things you're working on there. Um, James, would you like to start? Sure. Um, I've been with Greenspoon Martyr only a few months. Um, I was recruited in part to help with the cannabis tax practice, and I've been doing a lot of work uh, in cannabis tax as well in structuring the international financial aspects of our clients who uh, – because they're denied uh, access to us, capital markets have to fund abroad. So there have been many interesting aspects of tax involved for for uh, me. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, yeah, and, and Rachel, you mentioned you had uh, started your own practice in the past and now you're with Greenspoon Martyr, I believe. Um, just tell me more about that, what, uh, what you're working on and you know, what, what the values of the company are. Sure. So I joined Greenspoon Martyr uh, two and a half years ago, and I, I did so because I had my own practice, which, you know, 100% of my practice was dedicated to representing cannabis businesses. Mm-hmm. And when I first started, you know, most most larger law firms wouldn't really touch this space because of the federal illegality. I'm, I was really happy to see larger law firms getting involved in this space. I think it's that, that, cannabis businesses deserve good legal representation. Um, and so uh, I joined Greenspoon Martyr because I saw the benefit of joining a firm that had tremendous resources that my clients could utilize, including attorneys like James Mann that have, uh, you know, significant skill set in tax. And, you know, we have a number of, of really talented corporate attorneys. I mean, the one thing about operating a cannabis business is, you know, you have the same business needs as any other business and really cannabis law touches all areas of law. Um, you're going to have employment issues. You're going to have IP issues. You're going to have tax issues. You're going to have uh, regulatory and licensing issues. You're going to have um, compliance matters. Uh, there's just and corporate matters, obviously. There's just so much that's involved. And I saw that my clients really needed, um, you know, comprehensive legal uh, advice. And you do that by joining a group of very talented lawyers like there were at Greenspoon Martyr. So I think it was really uh, th- to the benefit of my client and for the purposes of serving my cannabis business clients that I saw the need to go to a larger firm. And it's been a really, really good move. Yeah, gosh, so much compliance. Compliance left, compliance to the right, compliance up and down. That is our life in the cannabis industry. That's true. Yeah, yeah. Greenspoon Martyr is is a like the number of attorneys I see on the list is is extensive. I mean, uh, there's a directory, and the number of um, issues and practices uh, is is mind blowing. You cover everything from labor and employment. 
marital family law. It, it, it is really, it seems like there's probably no part of law that Greenspoon Martyr seems um, to, to not touch, which is pretty impressive and, and, and a benefit to the cannabis industry. Because like you just said, we, I mean, even though we're not treated like any other um, regular industry in America, um, we have all the same issues, if not more than, than other industries and industry sectors might have. Um, okay. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing all that. It's, it's been great to get to know both of you and I'm looking forward to learning more about this case with Harborside Health Center, which um, many people know is uh, one of the most well-known um, medical cannabis and now shifting into adult use dispensaries uh, based in the Bay Area of California. And uh, the very well-known Steve D'Angelo uh, was the founder of that business as well. So uh, we're going to take a quick commercial break uh, and then we'll come back and learn more about the case from Rachel and James of Greenspoon Martyr. So please stay tuned. We'll be right back. NCIA's Cannabis Industry Voice will return once we give a voice to our sponsors. Ignite the conversation on some trending topics along the Cannabis Radio social media network. Join our crew of thousands on our Cannabis Radio page on Facebook or at Canna Radio, C-A-N-N-A Radio on Twitter. Plus, look for our Facebook and Google Plus pages for all of our original programs and connect with Dr. Dina, Kyle Cushman, Dr. Mitch Earlywine, Nurse Heather, Doc Rob, the host of Gondrepreneur, and more. Connect with the growing Cannabis Radio social crusade at Canna Radio on Twitter or search for Cannabis Radio on Facebook, Google Plus, and Instagram and grow with us. Oh, let the marijuana llama tell you something now About a game for your phone gonna make you say wow The game's about the game of growing cannabis for cash Grow the seeds, sell the bud, put the savings in the stash Little by little your empire grows large Put the big celebrities inside your entourage You can choose to play with Snoop or me or Chichin Chong Cypress Hill, Willie Nelson, Wiz Khalifa with a bong The name of the game is him pink, that's the point Download and play while you light yourself a joint the business of cannabis should be no crime. Hemp Inc. is even hot-proofed by the man who run high times. Oh, yeah. Get it on Android and I and iOS today. Marijuana Llama out. Got to tend to me on crops, you know. Money don't make itself. Hemp Inc. The 2019 United States Cannabis Conference and Expo returns back to downtown Miami August 2nd and 3rd at the Hyatt Regency. Learn more on sponsorship and expo floor opportunities at usccexpo.com. Don't miss out on another jam-packed weekend of education, speed networking, powerful keynotes, a bustling expo hall, plus our can't-miss networking mega-yacht event. Join us in Miami August 2nd and 3rd for the 2019 United States Cannabis Conference and Expo. Don't miss the boat. Log on to usccexpo.com and learn more today. Get informed, get inspired, and get connected with more of NCIA's Cannabis Industry Voice only on CannabisRadio.com. All right, we're back on NCIA's Cannabis Industry Voice on Cannabis Radio. I'm your host, Bethany, with the National Cannabis Industry Association, and we're talking with a couple of our members from the company Green Spoon Martyr, Rachel Gillette and James Mann, attorneys in the cannabis space, focusing on issues related to Section 280E of the IRS tax code, 
which uh, continues to affect and perhaps suffocate the cannabis industry. Um, so I'm eager, we're all eager to learn more and talk about this recent ruling for Harborside Health. Um, as I mentioned, a very well-known cannabis dispensary in Northern California founded by Steve D'Angelo. They recently went to court in late November, and well, that's why I've asked you to join the podcast so, so we non-attorneys can learn more about what happened and, and what it all means. Um, so let's start with the 10,000-foot view of this. What, what happened? Um, well, as I said, the IRS told Harborside that it owed an additional $30 million in tax just for the years 2007 to wow. 2012. Um, the IRS said the increase in tax owed by Harborside mostly came from reclassifying expenses from the cost of goods sold to ordinary business expenses and then denying the deductions for those expenses under tax code section 280E. Um, Harborside argued, uh, this is a little bit thing. Harborside argued that the broader cost of goods sold rules under tax code section 263A applied in addition to the earlier and narrower definition of cost of goods sold under section 471. The court did not agree. Um, Harborside also contended that the 16th amendment to the constitution compelled using the new section 263A rules in addition to the section 471 cost of goods sold rules, and the tax court was very dismissive of the argument, mm. pointing out that Section 471 wasn't found unconstitutional during the many decades when it was the only means of calculating cost of goods sold, and it wouldn't be unconstitutional now if Congress repealed Section 263A. So it was a, it was a bad deal for the taxpayer all the way around. Gotcha. Yeah, so, so with the, the, just the fact that they're selling cannabis, which is still a Schedule One. Uh, drug or substance according to the Controlled Substances Act, um, any other business would be able to deduct these normal business deductions. Um, but because it's cannabis, they're saying that doesn't count and you're not eligible to write off those uh, expenses to run your business. That It's mind-blowing. And I know most people know that a normal business would pay you know, 20 30% average business taxes. Now companies and nonprofits, even like Harborside, are looking at 70-80% tax rate, which which just seems unrealistic, of course. Um, okay, so thanks for giving that 10,000 foot view. Um, what happens from here? I mean, are there going to be appeals? Is there any further action? Is there more discovery to happen? What, what, what do we do here? Well, Harborside has two options. It can either pay the tax or it can appeal to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Um, I think appeal, I said before, I was in charge of federal appellate tax litigation. I think the Ninth Circuit may well be more s sympathetic to the taxpayers here hmm. than the tax court. Uh, in this case, is a great one to appeal because they're not trying to reverse any finding of fact by the lower court, which is a very high standard of reversible error, okay. but rather the legal analysis by the tax court of a single issue, the tax accounting issue with respect to the cost of goods sold. So um, given the amount of money involved, I think they should go ahead and appeal. 
Yeah, that's a lot of zeros. Thirty-six million dollars. That's 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 really hard to uh, to choke down for sure. Okay, so we may see an appeal, and ho- hopefully, we'll see an appeal to the Ninth Circuit Court, and and hopefully, we'll see some better results out of that. Any idea when that could take place, or it's just how the legal system works? It could take years. They have. 90 days from the judgment, but part of the judgment is still outstanding. The tax court reserved on the issue of the accuracy-related penalties, which is 20% in addition to the $30 million. So I think they, my belief is they can appeal only after that last part of the opinion shows up. So it might, it might be a while. Okay. Okay. Um, So Rachel, your, your clients are Probably they've probably been waiting to see how this would turn out. Um, what are their reactions to this decision? Are they feeling a little nervous? Well, I think they're at this point uh, used to some pretty negative tax court rulings with regard to 280E. I mean, that's what we've seen since the Champ case back in, I believe it was 2007. Um, so there, there really hasn't been any good news out of the tax court. Any any time in the in the last 10 years. So I think they're sort of, it's more of the same, but it's incredibly disappointing because I think James was right to characterize it as an injustice. And this is what they've been saying, uh, my clients, everybody in the industry has been saying for a long time. It is a total injustice to apply this archaic provision of the tax code, which was uh, passed by Congress in 1982 as a result of, you know, a, a drug dealer essentially t- being able to take ordinary business uh, and necessary business expenses. That was the height of the drug war. The the idea of legal state legal cannabis businesses was not even a twinkle in anybody's eye at the time. We now have a completely different environment, and. Um, we have states that are trying to le- to to regulate. They are taxing. They are trying to have uh, oversight. They are trying to create environments where there are transparency and people are doing the right thing in their businesses in the cannabis space. And this is what the voters have passed and state legislatures have passed. And unfortunately, um, I feel like the government's application of 280E um, really undermines what states are trying to do here. Um, mm-hmm. Because unfortunately, what it does is it provides a subsidy to the black market because the people who are being affected by these incredibly high tax rates, which are the businesses that are licensed, these are the businesses, they, the IRS is not unfortunately going after people who are in the black market Mm-hmm. Uh, for 280E. And that's because those people are not filing tax returns or paying taxes. Totally. And they operate in the black market. <laughs> so they're, it's like shooting fish in a barrel. They they've see, These businesses are required to be tax compliant in order to um, maintain their licensure. And so the IRS is targeting this industry of licensed cannabis businesses. And, you know, unfortunately they're being taxed at these rates and they're having to compete with black market people who aren't playing by the rules that can probably offer products at a lower cost or to them 
And so it really undermines everything. And it's just subsidizing the black market. And I think it's if if the federal government could look at it from that perspective, um, it doesn't make a lot of sense <laughs> to right. apply a 1982, you know, tax code provision to a completely different business and legal environment um, and industry. Right. So, you know, I think that's one of the things that NCIA is obviously working on. We've been talking about 280E for a, a very, very long time. Um, and I think it would actually be beneficial for everybody, including the federal government, um, to create an environment where these businesses can, you know, be treated like normal businesses. I mean, even Republicans and Democrats, everybody on both sides of the aisle, they've all said they don't want corporate tax rates to be over 35%. So why are we doing this to a particular industry? It doesn't make a lot of sense. So it really does need to be changed. It needs to be changed on the, you know, by Congress. And I know we have some legislation that's been proposed out there uh, by our Senator, uh, Republican Senator Cory Gardner, that would change this. Um, it's something that I think is really important. I think it's beneficial for everybody involved, including the federal government, to get to sort of get rid of this uh, 40-year-old tax provision that really doesn't make sense in a uh, legalized marijuana industry um, yeah, where you yeah, have absolutely. states that are trying to regulate. So that's, that's my soapbox. But it, it's also a little bit ridiculous because the reality is that this, the income that they're being taxed on, uh, these cannabis businesses, including Harborside, $36 million, those were, that's money income that has never actually hit their pocket. It's never hit anybody's pocket because that was money that was spent on expenses, which are now being denied by and treated as if they were income. So it's completely unrealized income as well. And, you know, I, I question the collectability in some cases. Um, and I just, I don't know that it makes a lot of sense to continue this effort um, by the IRS. Um, right, so right. It's, it, it's really a, it's, it's needs to be changed. Absolutely. I mean, why punish those businesses that are trying to go by the rules and stay compliant and why miss out on all this federal tax revenue that, that the government could be collecting from the legal sales as well. Totally agree. And NCIA's, working on several fronts at the federal level to fix it and, and one suggestion being to amend that section of the tax code to exempt state legal cannabis businesses. So hopefully we can get Congress to to do some work on those issues as well as the banking issues and all other issues that hold down the cannabis industry. Um, we have to take a quick commercial break, uh, but we'll be right back uh, to wrap up our conversation with Attorneys Rachel Gillette and James Mann from Greenspoon Martyr. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. NCIA's Cannabis Industry Voice will return once we give a voice to our sponsors. Now available for pre-order through crowdfunding for just $14 plus $10 shipping. Pouches, premium mixing and rolling pouches, allow you to carry and prepare your herbs for consumption with discretion and ease. These stylish pouches are handcrafted using strong zips, long-wearing buffalo leather outside, and smooth sheepskin inside. A portion of proceeds go to fund vital medical research into cannabis for ADHD. See a demo and get yours now on Indiegogo or Pouches.com. That's P-O-U-C-H-Z.com. 
Strainwise Consulting is the most sought-after consulting company for cannabis business applications and management contracts. We consulted on the first recreational license in the world and have had an over 95% success rate on applications submitted. The industry is growing at such an exponential rate that building a powerful and lasting cannabis business is a number one priority. Here's Strainwise's Sean Eubanks. In our first five years, we branded and supported nine medical and recreational marijuana dispensaries and approximately 160,000 square feet of sophisticated and efficient product cultivation. Strainwise Consulting has the experience and expertise to guide you through the process. Are you ready to be inspired and educated by the best of the best in the cannabis industry while enjoying sunny South Florida? Then you cannot miss out on the second annual United States Cannabis Conference and Expo, August 2nd and 3rd at the Hyatt Regency in downtown Miami. The USCC Expo welcomes all cannabis business professionals, medical cannabis caregivers and clinicians, growers and dispensary owners to join us for another can't-miss event sponsored by the radio and podcast leader for all things cannabis, CannabisRadio.com. Learn more at usccexpo.com. Get informed, get inspired, and get connected with more of NCIA's Cannabis Industry Voice only on CannabisRadio.com. All right, we're back on NCIA's Cannabis Industry Voice on Cannabis Radio, talking with attorneys James Mann and Rachel Gillette of Greenspoon Martyr about tax issues here in the cannabis industry. And we've got just a few minutes before we wrap up, but so, gosh, all these court cases, James, is the cannabis industry going to win in court one of these days? Are, are we are we going to be able to get beyond all this stigma and, and feeling like we're being punished for existing? Maybe. Uh, I'd say a couple of things quickly. One, there are arguments about 2ADE that haven't been made yet. Two, there are courts other than the tax court to use, federal district court and the court of federal claims. Three, Mm -hmm. what the tax court is saying to the cannabis industry in Harborside, if you read the opinion, is get your act together when you come to this court. On page 25 of the opinion, it points out that Harborside's lawyer copied verbatim part of the brief from Olive, another case, and that the tax court summarily dismissed that very argument in Olive. Oops. Also in Harborside, the court notes on page 40 that in another case, Alterman, taxpayers' lawyer failed to even provide record citations or findings of fact. You get my general point here. Interesting. Okay, so we we can't just show up. We, we really have to get all of our ducks in a row and be prepared to go above and beyond when we're facing the court. Gotcha. Good advice for all... <laughs> all of those who may find themselves in, in the courtroom um, over cannabis business issues for sure. Um, uh, so Rachel, as we're wrapping up here, I'm sure everyone's curious what, what prospects we see for legislative relief in, in the 116th Congress. We've got some new faces coming in, um, some women and people of color and people that haven't been established in Congress for decades. Finally, we got them out. We got some fresh blood in there. Is this is this positive for for the cannabis industry? I think it is. And I, I mean, I think as we see generations sort of change in Congress, we see new new blood in Congress. We're going to we're going to see change when it comes to uh, cannabis issues generally. 
and the federal treatment of cannabis as Schedule One controlled substance. I'm I'm eternally hopeful that we will see some change. <laughs> yeah. um, keep keep in Me mind too. that public support <laughs> public support for federal enforcement against these cannabis businesses that you know the voters, for example, in Colorado passed Amendment 64. It's been working here as a general matter. It's it's contributing to our economy. Mm-hmm. You know, I consider the 280E and the, the sort of um, enforcement of 280E rather than the, the, the reasonable, uh, taking a more reasonable stance, but sort of going after, like legitimately going after and targeting an industry. It's what I would consider backdoor enforcement. And I think what what may be known is that I, I don't think there's public support for, you know, federal government coming in and trying to shut down these businesses through the front door with, you know, guns and the DEA the way they used to. Yes, um, yeah. So maybe we'll just go through the <laughs> different route and we'll try to shut them down by, you know, assessing them with a $36 million tax bill. Um, and I don't think the public should stand for it because these are businesses that are taxpaying businesses. They're contributing to their business community. In most cases, they're, you know, responsible businesses. And, you know, I, as a parent of a 21-year-old and a 23-year-old now, and, you know, they they were in high school when Amendment 64 was passed, I like the fact that, you know, they that these businesses have to ask for an ID um, when people come in the door your your regular street corner drug dealer doesn't do that mm-hmm. so i think we're moving in the right direction as a society um it's just a matter of sort of <laughs> bringing the federal government's head out of the sand and you know i'm hopeful that congress as representatives of the people will listen to the people on this issue and hopefully get rid of 280 and i think there's actually a lot more revenue to be collected there's a lot more investment that can be made into these businesses without 280e so i think it's the right way to go so i'm hopeful that um you know our representatives will will uh, see that in the next congress and with some some changes made um there'll be movement on the issue Agree totally. Um, yes, I'm hopeful, ever eternal hopeful. Also, and and it, it's it's their job to listen to their constituents, uh, which is one of the reasons NCIA hosts an annual lobby days. Um, last year was fantastic, or this year I should say. Earlier this year was our eighth annual visit to D.C. to meet with members of Congress to talk about issues exactly like 280E, and we're going to do it again next year. Um, our ninth annual lobby days will be taking place, um, I believe, in April. Um, I'll have to double check those dates, but it'll be on the NCIA's website. And if you haven't joined us at lobby days in the past, please do out there. NCIA members are eligible. I know I've seen Rachel there on the steps of Congress uh, in the past with us as well. So thank you so much for that. Thanks for being involved. It's important to talk to these members of Congress and explain to them what's actually happening in our businesses. Um, So we must be diligent and we shall. Um, We have run out of time, but I think we've covered uh, a lot of what we wanted to cover with this case. And of course, we're going to be keeping our eyes on it as it affects the whole industry. Uh, So thank you both for your work on this issue and your membership with NCIA as well. 
Yeah, happy to do it. And just by the way, uh, Green Spoon Martyr was a very proud uh, a, a sponsor of Lobby Days. We participated in Lobby Days, and it is one of the best events that we could potentially participate throughout the year. So it's, it's definitely worth going to if, if your members or listeners haven't done it. It's, it's really empowering. Yeah, it's my favorite, too. We've got some great videos uh, recapping some of our events as well um, that people can check out to kind of get a a feel for what it's like. All right. Well, that's it for us today. Thank you again for joining us. And thanks, everyone, for tuning in to another episode. (laughs) Thanks, James, of uh, NCI's Cannabis Industry Voice. Until next time. The opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without proper consent of CannabisRadio.com is prohibited.